AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, Brett Johnson with you here on a Tuesday afternoon. And today we are joined by the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. That's Patrick Kulikan. Great resource for the latest in Minnesota news and politics is minnesotareformer.com. As we have a number of stories to talk about today, including the fact that, well, the Twin Cities metro area, to no one's surprise, ends up, uh, well, uh, spending more money than they take in in terms of tax revenue, which kind of flies in the face of what Republicans often say. We'll also be talking about whether shoplifting levels are rising or falling in Minnesota. Plus, we'll be talking about a dispute that a couple of DFL lawmakers may be having on Israel. And we'll also touch on Patrick's column about the Good Friday Agreement that was reached 25 years ago and some parallels that could uh, be relevant towards today. So, Patrick, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. So let's start off talking about, well, where our tax money is getting spent, who's taking in more money, or who's maybe taking in less money. That has to do with the whole urban versus rural divide. Because Madison McVann recently wrote an article in the Minnesota Reformer talking about how it's really the metro area taxpayers that end up, well, footing more of the bill as compared to our rural residents in Minnesota, which is uh, something we often hear Republicans talk about saying, well, it's actually rural people who are getting the worse end who are spending more money than they're taking in when it's the exact opposite situation. So... This all kind of stemmed from this uh, New Ulm Republican, Gary Doms, who said rural people are getting a bad deal, as he says that rural Minnesotans are taking in less money as compared to metro Minnesotans on transportation, health care, and education. So I'm curious, where is he getting these numbers from, and are these generally misleading that Republicans often cite when they say that rural people are having an undue burden of the tax, of the tax uh, rate? Yeah, he's talking specifically about uh, nursing home reimbursement rates um, and then also uh, transportation dollars um, and and finally uh, uh, education dollars per pupil. And um, in, in many cases, he's just flat wrong. Um, and in other cases, there's perfectly good explanations. Uh, for instance, let's, let's take education. There's a very complicated formula. Uh, that the that the state uses to determine uh, how much uh, aid goes to each individual school district. Um, some of that is, is based on the 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 kind of student population you have. For instance, if you have a lot of English language learners, if you have a lot of students who um, are qualified for free and reduced price lunch, um, um, then you're going to get more. And I think most people would agree that that's totally reasonable. There's also uh, extra money for school districts that are really spread out. Um, and so they, they require more money for transportation. Um, so the, the fact that uh, some urban school districts like say Minneapolis um, gets more than some rural uh, districts, um, it's, it's simply a matter of a, of a, uh, a mathematical, uh, very complicated algorithm. Um, and there's plenty of districts, uh, it goes the other way where you have uh, suburban districts in particular who are getting the least amount, uh, metro suburban districts, uh, compared to rural districts that are getting a lot because of uh, for various reasons. Um, but I, I think the, the, the more um, cogent point here is that uh, there's this idea that, that somehow the, the metro is, is kind of like a site off of rural uh, Minnesota, and uh, it's just completely untrue especially if you look at the tax side, I mean, and, and it makes perfect sense. We have more people, we have uh, higher paying jobs, and we have uh, more valuable property. And 
so as a result, there's just a lot more tax revenue coming out here. And if you think about it a little bit, um, I think it makes sense. For instance, we've been having a debate about whether or not we should have uh, copper sulfide mining in, in uh, northeastern Minnesota. And we often hear estimates about how many jobs uh, a mine might create. And, and uh, in the case of uh, PolyMet, um, you know, it's six or 700 jobs. Well, the reality is that if you go on to United Health uh, website, you will find six or 700 job openings. And, and these are really high paying uh, jobs, programmers and uh, business development, and that kind of thing. Uh, so I, I don't think it should surprise anyone that we're, we're paying way more taxes in the metro um, than, than greater Minnesota. I, um, and the other disadvantage that greater Minnesota faces is that they don't have these economies of scale um, like we do. So it's more expensive to provide a lot of services. And then they also don't have, uh, they, often small communities, um, they, they can't afford to, or, or they, they don't have any band staff who's applying for grants, for instance. Um, so um, it's just a, a common misconception, um, which unfortunately drives a lot of political polarization and a, and a lot of um, really bitterness. Um, and it's just, uh, it's all based on uh, uh, a myth. And uh, so we, we hope to uh, correct Senator Dobbs and we'll, we'll see uh, if he learns, uh, if he learns from us or not. Yeah, well, it remains to be seen whether that's going to be the case. But just to finish up on this as well, I, you brought up some logical points as to why in some cases, well, the metro area may be spending more than we take in or even vice versa. You brought up the case where, well, the metro area obviously has more people. We have jobs that pay more money. Property values are higher. And even if you look at sales tax, well, oftentimes people from rural areas will end up spending those sales tax dollars in metro areas when they have to do their shopping. And you even brought up the example of, I think this was the city of Big Fork, Minnesota, a town of 400, where, yeah, the mayor talked about how they have an affordable housing crisis and they'd like to apply for some grants to help, but they simply, being a town of 400, can't afford to hire someone to do that full-time job to apply for all of these grants. So I guess the point I'm making is that Really, there's a lot of logical reasons when you sometimes see these disparities between urban and rural tax revenues versus expenses. There's logical reasons that it's not this whole idea that, well, one side is out to get the other, rural people are out to screw over urban people, or urban people are out to screw over rural people. Oftentimes, there's logical reasons why we see these disparities. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's really not uh, politics. And I, I think if you, if you look at the bonding bills, these, these are the bills that are... Uh, every other year or, or every year lately um, that are public works uh, projects. Um, and uh, because it's borrowed money, require, usually requires a supermajority. Uh, if you look at these bills, they're really geographically pretty balanced. And you know, the, the, the Capital Investment Committee goes out to these really far-flung communities and is investing uh, serious money in water infrastructure and, and road and bridge uh, construction and, and maintenance. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think there's a, uh, is there going to be some geographic imbalance because of the way our politics have become so geographically polarized? Yeah, probably. But generally speaking, um, this is not, uh, some grand conspiracy, um, by Metro folks, um, to, to try to, uh, take from 
rural Minnesota. Um, that's just not what's going on at all. Well, staying on the topic of myths, let's go to another myth that is often floated by uh, Republicans and people who are on the right side of the aisle, and that has to do with the fact that, well, pretty much ever since the pandemic, we have had out-of-control crime throughout the Twin Cities, and especially when it comes to shoplifting. But some interesting numbers just come out, came out from the Council of Criminal Justice talking about, well, the monthly reported shoplifting rates per 100,000 people. And that rate in the Twin Cities has fallen dramatically since the pre-pandemic levels of 2019, where, where if you look at the stats, the shoplifting instances are really going down quite dramatically. So I guess my question is, why are we seeing this reduction in shoplifting, and why is that perception still out there that crime is out of control when really the data is flying in the face showing that it's not out of control, especially with shoplifting? Yeah, our reporter Chris Ingram did some great uh, work on this. I mean, there's, it's possible that uh, that the stores, the retailers are not reporting it. Um, it's possible that they've taken, uh, and I think a lot of us have seen the measures they've taken to prevent um, shoplifting, um, but that there's a lot of evidence to think that that's actually it's just it, there's less shoplifting going on. Um, and as far as why we're hearing so much about it uh, continuously is probably related to the fact that uh, the the shoplifting that is happening is tends to be more organized and kind of sensational. Um, but apparently, um, it's it's actually uh, happening uh, less frequently uh, than it was even pre-pandemic. So it's kind of another example of uh, a, an ongoing story uh, with a lot of sensationalized media and uh, a lot of self-interested political actors, like you said, on the right side of the spectrum, who want us to think that uh, the cities in particular are these kind of chaotic, crime-ridden hellscapes. And um, there's at least some evidence pointing in the other direction. Well, you can read more about Christopher Ingham's reporting on that, uh, talking about shoplifting and how it's falling in the Twin Cities over at MinnesotaReformer.com. Now, I want to move on to a column that you wrote last week that has to do with the Good Friday Agreement that was signed a little over 25 years ago over in Ireland and some parallels we can draw from the troubles we saw in Ireland to some of the political conflict and political violence we are seeing in the United States because your column suggests that the conflict's resolution was influenced, well, largely by the fighters who were aging in that conflict and their desire to protect their children and just overall kind of being sick of the violence. Can you elaborate on how some of the personal experiences of the soldiers and people who were involved in that conflict, as well as their responsibilities of now being in parenthood and now in government at that time, kind of shifted their their takes away from violence and more towards, well, getting away from violence in Ireland. The reason that I, I was interested in this, uh, my, my ancestors come from there, but also uh, the, the topic of political violence uh, is really has interested me uh, and, a, and a lot of us, I think, in the last, uh, uh, since 2016, when um, it does seem as if um, we've seen an uptick in political violence, and it feels like there could be an explosion of it, um, and, and I think that's a lot, a lot of us fear about uh, next the next this com- upcoming election. And so I, I wanted to uh, get a sense for a, a country that had endured that kind of uh, political bloodshed, and, and also a sense for how it all came to an end. And um, the, the problem is that, that 
violence can be just so cyclical and kind of it creates its own logic where uh, if you were to stop the violence, then all of the suffering that had come before suddenly lacks any meaning. And so that this it becomes a, a reason for its own uh, continuation and uh, it makes it very hard to stop. And uh, so I read this great book uh, by Finn O'Toole, who, who kind of recounts the last 50 years or so of Irish history. And he, he talks a little bit about what, how, how it stopped. And I mean, a couple things were the, the, the youthful leaders on both sides, um, they kind of grew up and they had children of their own and they just didn't want to subject their own children to this, all this violence and suffering. And then the second part was they got more involved in normal politics. Uh, like think of it as a, constituent service uh, you know instead of uh, hunger strikes and uh, setting bombs as they had got elected to parliament and so forth they were suddenly uh, you know chasing down uh, as I put it chasing down somebody's lost welfare check and that kind of thing and when you get involved in normal politics suddenly pragmatic concerns become uh, front and center as opposed to uh, violent revolutionary concerns and, um, and I think one of the things that we're seeing in the United States Congress is uh, so many members have gotten away from those normal political concerns of, uh, you know, Representative Angie Craig is always, uh, I'm always getting a press release about how the mail services (laughs) needs to be improved. And it's like, that's the kind of politics I would like to see (laughs) return in America as opposed to, um, you know, there's some of the nonsense that we see uh, from the likes of the Freedom Caucus uh, who are um, openly engaging in um, something pretty close to revolutionary politics. And you would hope it wouldn't take something like we saw in Ireland, where we had just a whole bunch of violence that basically led to people, as you said, well, going into government and realizing, well, wait, there are everyday needs people that people have, and the fact that, well, we have children, that we don't want to subject them to the same violence. And I guess I kind of say that, because if we are to have political future political violence in America at a large scale. I don't think it's going to be, you know, like the 1860s with a full-on civil war. It'll probably be something much more like we saw with the kind of conflicts in in Ireland back in the tw- back in the late 20th century. And I think yeah, there certainly are some lessons we could learn from over there to take to here and I just hope it doesn't take what we saw in Ireland to well to have us uh, tone down some of the political violence rhetoric that we often see right now. Let's hope. And then the other yeah. concern about uh, the, the situation here is that there's 400 million guns floating around the United States. Um, and th- that was always a, an issue for the IRA uh, was getting their hands on weapons. And that would never be an issue for, for yeah. any uh, violent political group here. Yeah, unfortunately, as you said, yeah, there would be uh, no shortage of weapons that they would have access to with the gun laws in our country. And one more story to cover before we have to wrap things up, and this has to do with some divisions we've been seeing among Democrats on the issue of the Israel-Hamas conflict. Now, where we're going to go is an email exchange between State Senators Ron Latz and Omar Fatah, who are both Democrats, and this has to do with a Facebook post by Rich Ginsburg, who is a DFL lobbyist and Metropolitan Airports Commissioner member who was appointed by Governor Tim Walls. Now, Ginsburg made a Facebook post that included a quote from Golda Meir, who is the late Israeli Prime Minister, 
leader who helped found the country. And he said, quote, peace will come when Arabs will love their children more than they hate us. And Omar Fattah took exception to that post being made and then ended up having an email exchange with Ron Latz over this. So walk us a little bit through about this exchange between Fattah and Latz and what were some of the key points that were raised by both members? Yeah, there, there is a really serious division um, in the DFL on this issue. Uh, I think it's pretty painful, and I, I think it was kept under wraps uh, for the first six weeks or so of the conflict, and now it's really uh, come out into the open. And uh, Senator Fatah um, had, had wanted, wants the removal of Ginsburg. Ginsburg is a, a longstanding uh, DFL operative and uh, lobbyist and fundraiser. Um, and, uh, and, and Senator Fata said, uh, you know, you're only, you're, you're not, he's telling his colleagues, the reason you're so quiet on this is because he raises money for the party. Um, and, uh, Latz, um, defended, um, Ginsburg and kind of gave the full context of the Golden Mate My Ear quote. And, uh, Fata re- replied in kind. Um, still, um, you know, quite angry and it's an emotional issue and, um, and the party is certainly divided. Uh, it's, it, it, and it exposes, uh, divisions, other divisions in the party. And I think it's, um, you know, do, do voters make decisions based on the conflict in, in the Middle East that doesn't involve the United States? Probably not. Um, but I, I don't think the DFL wants to go into this next election cycle um, with deep emotional um, wounds related uh, to this conflict, and, and I, I don't see how it's going to be um, going to be healed. Um, and of course, it was made even worse when Lats made a speech last week um, that um, he was sharply criticized for uh, when he said something to the effect that uh, Palestinian children dream of, um, of, of winning uh, glory of martyrdom. He says he was referring to the, um, the indoctrination of anti-Semitism in, in Gaza schools, um, but that was um, not a satisfactory explanation for 13 of his colleagues who wrote a letter con- uh, to him, uh, um, a sharp rebuke of him and so this conflict is uh it's ongoing and uh we'll have to see if they're able to to come to some kind of understanding uh, remember the state senate is 3433 dfl I and mean, it's mm-hmm. very closely divided they really need to hang together and one of the one of the reasons they they were so successful the the democrats last year in getting their legislative agenda passed is because that that Senate caucus hung together, even though there were some sharp disagreements on a number of issues. But this is, uh, you know, this, this really um, could be a real problem um, when the legislative session starts in February and then certainly for the election. You can read more about that over at minnesotareformer.com, the exchange between uh, the two DFLers. Again, minnesotareformer.com. We have been speaking with Patrick Hulican. He is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. We are just about out of time today. But, Patrick, as always, appreciate the time. Thanks for coming on. Always a pleasure. Let's take a break and send things back over to Matt McNeil on AM 950.